Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You've heard us say it before, the 2020 presidential election was met with record voter turnout. Several states across the country made it easier for Americans to cast their vote amid the deadly coronavirus pandemic. The entire system of elections in the United States is for the most part set around the whole construct of having all the foxes guard the hen house. Because if all the foxes are guarding the hen house, then they're not going to let some other fox go grab those eggs. And so understand there's a context to elections that in most cases, in most places, works very well because you've got strong partisans from both sides or multiple sides. Welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote. So we're here to podcast where you, the American voter, have the opportunity to understand how elections really work and how you can help improve the process and restore confidence in American democracy. We will interview leading election experts, explore election controversies, and demystify election administration. From voter registration to ballot casting and counting, results reporting, and on through to certification and audits. We'll answer all your burning questions. Is vote by mail safe? How are foreign countries trying to interfere in our elections? And yes, do dead people actually vote? And we hope you will listen, like the future of our country depends on it. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to The Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. At least that's what we do normally. Uh, but the world has been somewhat turned upside down in the last six or seven weeks. I'm Oracle Brown, who is in a remarkably sunny Bay Area in California. And today I'm joined by Chuck Holton, an American war correspondent. Chuck is currently uh, working for Newsmax and is embedded in uh, Ukraine following the war. If an attack were to take place in this region, in Donetsk Oblast, which is pretty close to the separatist-held territory, uh, people around here have to know where they would go to be safe. 
We're going to go take a look at a bomb shelter right now and see what it's like. Wow. So, very heavy door on this. It's uh, almost half inch thick steel. It doesn't look super comfortable, but uh, it beats getting blown up. Uh, there's a look. Look here. You have a body bag. It says disaster body bag on it. They say they would use this as a stretcher, like a, a mobile stretcher, if people got injured, and that's pretty smart. Uh, so he's saying that these tanks here were provided by the International Organization for Migration, funded partially by the United States. They're able to store water down here in case of an emergency, and that will allow the people who may have to stay down here for some time to be able to survive and have enough water. Chuck, that's a real kind of vivid insight into the preparations before war. You went to Ukraine a couple of weeks before the invasion. When you went, how likely did you think it was going to be that the Russians would actually invade? Uh, I did not think that would happen at all. I was kind of like the majority of Ukrainians in believing that uh, this was more saber rattling on the part of the Russians. The Russians did a great job of sort of inuring the Ukrainians to the idea of an invasion uh, by threatening it for eight years. And uh, we would ask people in Luhansk and Donetsk region uh, who were just sort of going about their daily lives up right up until the moment of the invasion and say, don't you know, aren't you worried about the, you know, uh, Russians invading? And they would say, listen, those kind of threats to us are called Tuesday. Uh, they just they happen all the time, and so we don't pay any attention to them anymore. Uh, and uh, so it was pretty fascinating to see how, really, in many ways, they were unprepared, uh, or at least they didn't believe it would happen. I, I I would say they were always prepared for it to happen, but they never believed it actually would. It was a sense of where you traveled around the country beforehand, very obviously. That report was from, from the east, very close to the line of control. But where else did you go to before the invasion to get a sense of the, the country? Well, this is not my first trip to Ukraine. I was here during the 2014 crisis and was here in 2007 as well. Actually, I've been to Chernobyl twice uh, on different projects. So uh, on this particular trip, we first went down to Kherson and uh, actually didn't quite make it over here to Mykolaiv, but uh, there were some, if you recall, large-scale military exercises happening in Belarus between in the Russians and the, and the Belarusians. Uh, the Ukrainians put on a really amazing training exercise in Kherson that uh, focused mostly on disaster response, um, like first responder type stuff, medical stuff, uh, protest management, putting out fires and things like that. So we went with a big press pool down there and uh, watched that training exercise. Right in the middle of it, President Zelensky showed up out of the blue and uh, gave a 
pretty stirring um, speech at the end of the training exercise that was uh, very well received. And then we left from there and drove uh, all the way up the red line between the temporary, what they call here, the temporary occupied regions of Donetsk and Luhansk. So we went through Kramatorsk. We went uh, all the way up uh, and got within uh, probably four kilometers of the, actually the city of Donetsk uh, at right right on the line. A, a couple times our mapping software showed that we had actually crossed the line into the separatist held regions, but uh, there was nobody around. We were out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so we spent a couple of weeks doing that and then came back to uh, Kiev just a few days before the actual invasion kicked off. So you painted a picture that fundamentally Ukrainians on the ground did not believe that this invasion was going to happen. They thought it was saber-rattling. Tell us about that day when the, when the tanks actually did roll over the border. Uh, we, we had gotten an idea that it was going to happen. I, if I recall, thinking back and some of the uh, messaging that was coming out of the U.S. government and everything like that, they were saying, it's, this is going to happen. It's going to happen in the next 24 hours. I had gone out and prepared we had decided we didn't have a vehicle at first. We were just renting drivers with their own vehicles. Uh, and I started thinking, you know, it probably would be good for us to have our own vehicle and have some supplies saved up in case this does happen. And if things progress quickly and we have to get out of here, there's going to be 9 million people at the train station. And I don't want to have to fight that crowd. So we went out and found a rental car. I went to the hardware store and bought a couple of extra fuel tanks and put them in the back. Uh, we got some food, we got some water, and uh, had everything kind of pre-staged in the basement of the Hilton Hotel in Kiev when we got word that the uh, tanks were rolling. Now, when you look at the map and realize that it's only about, what, 70 kilometers or so from the border of Belarus down to Kiev, uh, even going cross country, it probably wouldn't take more than a day or so to cover that kind of ground uh, if they had easy going. So we, you know, I thought immediately, okay, we've we're, we're probably going to have to get out of Kiev in short order. And we started thinking about how to take care of our team. We had a team at that point of six people, I think. Um, fixer, translator, driver, uh, cameraman, myself, and another talent. Uh, and so we we made the decision to try to establish uh, a, a safe house, where someplace where we could escape to if Kiev did fall very quickly. So we took a day, we drove south out of Kiev and found a place, a real excellent um, location, uh, about two hours south of the city that's just sort of out of the way and there's a little um, kind of a log cabin almost like a koa campground with some some nice little log cabins there uh, right next to a gas station that still had gas and so we rented that place and stayed there a day or two just to make sure everything worked and kind of made a deal with the owner where they would provide meals for us and when by then we realized that uh Kiev was not probably going to fall very quickly. And so we moved back up into the city and stayed uh, just south of downtown 
in a hotel that was occupied actually by the UN. So we were, I think, some of the only people in the hotel that were not UN members. And so we had access to the UN's uh, security guys and some people that we knew there that we could uh, kind of call on for some extra intelligence. And that just sort of progressed from there as it became uh, within, I don't know, maybe a week and a half, two weeks time, it really became clear that the Russians were not anywhere near as formidable as everybody had predicted. And uh, I started saying, holy cow, they, they might actually lose this thing. Um, so by then we, we moved back into Kiev, uh, moved into the premier palace hotel, which is owned partially by a Russian oligarch. And so we figured that'd be one of the last places to get bombed and, uh, stayed there, uh, up until actually just this last week, uh, our team was still up there uh, and they, they moved out because the, uh, the Ukrainian government, uh, realized that this hotel was owned by a Russian oligarch and decided to occupy it with uh, Ukrainian troops and take take over the hotel. Chuck, can you describe the defenses uh, that you saw go up in and around Ukraine? And again, set us back to uh, the, that first week of the invasion. I know you said that you then left when you realize how close it was to the border, but give us a sense of the defensive preparations, the military being on the streets, you know, did people immediately then try and evacuate civilians, etc. Give us a real picture of, of a city bracing itself for invasion. Right. You saw uh, two things happen immediately. You saw uh, women and children being uh, dropped off at the train station, uh, heading out of, out of town. And you saw checkpoints going up, everywhere on almost every street corner around kiev uh and blocking positions and uh, you know pretty formidable defenses went up almost overnight it's amazing how quickly they put those together and there were people out in the city parks going to the kids playgrounds and using the sand from the sandbox to fill sandbags with uh and that continues to this day one of the things that makes me pretty uh, certain that Russia has missed its window uh, to to see any kind of victory out of this campaign is the fact that there, the Ukrainians have now had so much time to continue fortifying their defensive positions that it would take really some sort of nuclear uh, you know bomb or something to shoehorn these guys out of their cities. Uh, Everybody in Ukraine went full red dawn on day one, really. Um, They they started coming out with deer rifles and shotguns and uh, signing up en masse with the territorial defense. And even if they didn't sign up with the territorial defense, they were making up their own units, of little militias going around everywhere. And it actually was very dangerous for a, a week or so because everybody was so jumpy that uh, I, I remember one time uh, we were just driving around in Kiev trying to get somewhere. We came around a corner and right around the corner, there was a blocking position, a, a roadblock. And so, you know, you don't want to just drive up on a roadblock very quickly uh, and surprise them. You know, that's always a really bad thing. So I stopped well back from the roadblock and all these soldiers and militia guys and stuff 
just deployed out of the woods and from behind vehicles and everything and drew down on us and waved us forward, you know, very urgently. And so I, we carefully drove forward and I literally had both hands out the, the driver's side window, uh, holding my hands up. Uh, please don't shoot. No, please don't shoot. Even though our vehicle was marked as a press vehicle and everything, um, they yanked us out of the vehicles and did everything but prone us out on the ground as they searched the whole vehicle. And, and I mean, I, I've never, I've, I've been doing this 20 years. I was, I was thinking we are very, very close to getting shot right now. We had a lot of AK 47s pointed at our chest and you could tell those guys didn't have a lot of training and they were very, very nervous. Uh, and we had been watching a lot of videos coming out of people getting shot at checkpoints just because they drove up on them too fast or drove up on them too slow or didn't have had their lights on, or, you know, whatever. Um, fortunately that process has been, um, professionalized, uh, to a great extent now, and it's not nearly as big a deal to, to go through all the checkpoints that you see here in Ukraine. People are sort of used to it now, but back then it was, uh, really dicey, uh, to, to say the least. Thousands of bedraggled civilians made their way out of heavily contested areas northwest of Kyiv under the promise of a 12-hour ceasefire by Russian forces. This destroyed bridge choked with the debris of war. Many walked for miles to get here. There are corpses inside the city, many are dead, including civilians. And now these people are trying to leave this very dangerous area. And people here, Ukrainian army and territorial, I'm a member of territorial defense for the moment. We are helping people to get out from here. As we were leaving, we encountered this couple struggling to help Maria, an 84-year-old grandmother. Everyone pitched in to help get Maria across the river. The makeshift footbridge was treacherous at best. Be careful. Thank you. Saved my life. We go sideways a little bit. We're good. Safely across, the couple hurried to get Maria into an ambulance. What they still don't know is where they go from here. In Earpin, I'm Chuck Holt for Newsmax. That was an amazing uh, piece of reporting that you did at Erpin, which is just to the west uh, of Kiev at the, at the height of the battle. And you got a real sense when, when I watched that news report, Chuck, uh, of the stoicism of, of people. Uh, and, you, and you caught that in the piece and you talked about the fact that they didn't leave uh, the eight-year-old grandmother. You know, she was helped to cross this bridge. And one thing I had to cut out of that because it was a two-and-a-half-minute segment that, that the bridge had also been destroyed as well. So it wasn't just a case of just walking across a bridge. It was a, a bridge which is in some level of, of disrepair. How do you figure out where to go um, as a news reporter? Are you quite literally going to the sound of uh, gunfire, of the explosions? How, how exactly do you um, find yourself in a place which um, is going to be able to accurately display the news for Newsmax and for, for, for consumption ar around the world. How exactly does that work? How do you make that calculus? Uh, we, you know, we do a lot of open source aggregation. We look through Twitter. We look through, you know, other reports that are coming out on Telegram and things like that to try to uh, find where to go. But there are also uh, some dedicated 
journalist only WhatsApp groups that the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian interior uh, ministry have put together that we all belong to. So they will say, um, you know, a bomb just hit this area. Um, if you want to come see it, you know, this is a good time to do it, whatever. Uh, and there's some communication that takes place sort of behind the scenes somewhat uh, that way. Which kind of moves me on to a, a really kind of interesting, uh, maybe noteworthy bit of this conflict as opposed to any other. You know, we are very definitely living through uh, the era of open source information in a way that we haven't done so before. When it was the first Gulf War, remember everybody was amazed that you could watch on your TV the Americans precisely bombing a bridge. And I remember General Schwarzkopf saying, you know, this is the luckiest man in Iraq when this guy drove his truck across the bridge and seconds afterwards it was kind of blown up behind us. But now not only can we watch uh, these things literally in real time, but we have the tools to be able to geolocate it whatever, whenever a picture is taken uh, with a smartphone uh, embedded in that is the time and location. And that provides for a level of authenticity and verification uh, on the battlefield that, that we've never had before. With this level of um, technology, which is at the hands of ordinary people, let alone reporters like yourself, how does that change your job? Well, it actually makes it quite a bit safer, uh, and it gives me a better picture of what's on the ground uh, because I can aggregate a bunch of this information before I go out and uh, kind of see what's going on and where. Uh, so, and also, it, I think it makes me safer because I, I can tell where not to go. Uh, you know, it is really fascinating. And, and I think that the side that best leverages this open source uh, opportunity, this open source intel, is going to be the side that is ultimately victorious. Um, as I was saying before, the, the most important battle space in this war is the media battle space because perception is reality in many ways. The country that best manages the media battle space and, and best leverages that into the kinetic realm uh, is the one that's going to win. So, uh, I mean, I'll just give you a great example that just kind of blew me away uh, of how this gets done. Uh, Ukraine uh, set up a, a, a hotline at the beginning of the war uh, and advertised on social media for not, not that it was, and they didn't say that it, that this is the Ukrainian military doing this. They just advertised this on social media in Russia saying, if uh, your son is fighting right now in Ukraine and you haven't heard from him, call this hotline and we'll see if we can find him for you. And so these distraught mothers all over Russia were calling this hotline and pouring out their hearts to uh, these female agents that answered the phone and saying, yes, my son's in the 193rd Mechanized Infantry Division and he's, he went in from uh, Rostov-Odon and, he went, you know, and they, they're giving all this information that they know about their sons trying to find their sons. And these agents who are actually trained uh, intelligence agents from the Ukrainian military are dutifully recording all of this information, which then gets passed back to analysts, which then um, aggregate all of that and 
are able to glean a tremendous amount of uh, actual intelligence out of that information. Um, and the the other thing that they did was record all these conversations. So these mothers are saying to the agent that they're talking to, who's very sympathetic, obviously, uh, they're saying, uh, my son didn't want to go fight. They didn't even, he didn't know he was going to war. He just thought he was going on a training exercise and et cetera, et cetera. They would then edit these and put them out on social media as propaganda pieces to show that Russians did, were, were against this from the start. And it was a masterstroke of, uh, you know, this sort of intelligence uh, and and shaping the media battle space, uh, which then becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in the kinetic battle space. It's fascinating stuff. I must admit, you, you totally enlightened me on something which I didn't know. That, that is one specific aspect of how the Ukrainians have really used um, digital media, social media to, to their, their advantage. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, very obviously, uh, the Ukrainians have done a masterstroke in terms of getting their message out there to the world. And, and, and at the heart of that has been the performance of uh, Vladimir uh, Zelensky, uh, the, their president. How important do you think um, him being an effective communicator, not only to the world, but also to Ukrainians, has actually been to bolstering Ukrainian morale during the war? Well, say what you like about Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, the guy is a leader and he... Uh, he understands what people need. If you if you look at the uh, the subtle messaging in everything that not only he is doing but that his whole staff is doing, um, they he, he doesn't wear a suit. He doesn't look like a politician. Uh, even uh, on his addresses to the UN and things like that, he's wearing a military uniform. He's wearing a T-shirt on on camera. He hasn't shaved. Uh, it's obvious that he is 
that he's making it known that he is in the trenches with the men. Um, when he's not actually in the trenches, but he is, you know, doing his part for the war effort and is not, uh, you know, leaving it to others to do. He's leading from the front. Uh, I used to tell my boys that a leader is the uh, the man who picks up the heaviest burden first and sets it down last. And that is the kind of leader that Vladimir Zelensky is showing himself to be. Uh, so, uh, you know, apart from whether or not he's corrupt, apart from whether or not, uh, you know, the, the, the politics of this, uh, his messaging has been about as good as it could possibly get. Uh, now, uh, there have been some things since the war began where uh, his, well, I mean, just the, the cultural aspects of uh, a post-Soviet country have sort of come out in some of the decisions he's made, such as uh, nationalizing the TV station and, um, you know, making illegal some of the opposition political parties and things like that. Uh, and, and and certainly when you are here, you've, you can feel in many, many small ways those echoes of the Soviet Union and that uh, culture of you are just a cog in a machine. You're not an individual. You are not important. The only thing that's important is the state and what the state wants. Um, that, that still pervades Ukraine just like it does all post-Soviet countries. Uh, and it not, I would say to, to a much lesser extent than some of the other post-Soviet countries I've been to, but nevertheless, it's still there. And, um, anyway, so that I, I think that Zelensky's messaging to his own people by, you know, staying and fighting and, uh, not running away, not pulling, a an um, Afghanistan, you know, um, even, even in his sort of acerbic wit when it comes to, uh, his, speeches to the UN or to the United States Congress or Senate, something like that, uh, I think plays very well with the everyday Ukrainian. It's springtime in Armenia, and the cherry blossoms have arrived around the capital city, Yerevan. And that's not all that's breaking out here. More than 120,000 Russians have come here since the war began in Ukraine, with more arriving each day. This sudden influx, however, is causing challenges for Armenians as well. Well, my fiancé and I have been looking for an apartment, and the prices have gone up more than twice, and it's almost impossible to find an apartment in Yerevan. Everywhere, the prices have gone up, like, dramatically. This former Soviet satellite state is one of the few places left where Russians can travel, and up to 40 flights arrive here from Russia every day. Many of the passengers don't plan on going home anytime soon. Sometimes uh, there's more in more Russians in cafe than Armenians. There are Russians all over here in downtown Yerevan, and I've been talking to many of them. It seems like most of them are young professionals, IT people, things like that, people who do their work online. And that's something that you really can't do right now in Russia because of the sanctions. Also, everybody that I've spoken to has been vehemently against this war, but there's a catch. They don't want to go on camera and talk about it. That says a lot about how much they fear their own government, because most of them still have families back in Russia. Another great report that you did, Chuck. You've not just based yourself in Ukraine. You've obviously traveled to Armenia. Before I throw this out to questions uh, for, for the audience and also people on stage, give us a sense of um, 
the repercussions that you've seen that this invasion has had on the neighboring countries around uh, Ukraine and Russia? Yeah, that's actually been very fascinating. Um, I, I'll get to Armenia in just a second. Let me first talk about Egypt. I, I left uh, on the 20th of March and f- flew from Ukraine to, to Cairo. One of the things I found there is that uh, they are on red alert about the uh, coming lack of wheat. Uh, that's a country that uh, runs on bread. They say that... Uh, Egypt needs about 270 million loaves of bread a day in order to, to keep running. And uh, they get 60% of their, uh, their wheat from Ukraine and Russia. There's a very good chance, obviously, that that wheat may not be showing up this year. And so the president there has uh, mandated that every farmer grow a certain allotment of wheat to try to soften the blow somewhat. But prices are already rising. They've doubled and tripled uh, even just in, since the war started. People are already, uh, you know, very agitated about that. Of course, that's the kind of, um, you know, the rising prices of food are kind of what started the Arab Spring. And so the politicians are you know, keeping a very close eye on that and very worried about it. Uh, moving on from there to Armenia, uh, Armenia is one of the few countries that, uh, um, is, that is still open to Russians for, for travel in the region uh, where they can go and they can speak their own language. Uh, they can understand the culture somewhat, feel kind of at home. Uh, Armenia is really stuck between a rock and a hard place. Uh, they obviously are horrified by what they see coming out in the news uh, about Ukraine. At the same time, they sort of owe their survival to Russia, because if you remember back during the 2019 uh, Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, which I went to cover, uh, that's how I first met, uh, found out about you know what, what Armenia is like. Uh, they would have probably been overrun by Azerbaijan if it were not for Russia stepping in and uh, sort of causing a ceasefire to to take place and then sending about 8,000 peacekeepers in to keep that cease, that, that fragile peace that is getting more fragile by the day as Russia gets distracted by what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, so Armenia is trying not to wholeheartedly support Russia in this because they, they know it's wrong, but at the same time, they don't feel like they can, uh, criticize russia too harshly or they will uh open themselves up to really annihilate annihilation by the aziris uh who have already been making noises about restarting the conflict in artsakh or the nagorno-karabakh region um so i uh, there are russians everywhere about three thousand russians a day were coming in when i was there uh flying in uh, to yerevan uh, the housing prices, as you saw, are doubling and tripling. Uh, the $300 apartment is now $1,000 uh, a month. Uh, and that's causing some challenges for the people in Yerevan, but it's also bringing some opportunities. And, uh, of course, the uh, restaurants and cafes are saying they're having the best month. And actually, not every single Armenian I found was against the war. I had dinner with an Armenian family, uh, kind of a working class couple. 
And the when when we got to their house, the band had Russian state media playing on the television in the room where we sat to eat, and he never turned the TV off the whole meal, and he kept referring to stuff on the, on TV. This was during the the day that the uh, train station in Kramatorsk was hit, and it was fascinating to see how Russian state media. Uh, spun that story to say this is obviously the Ukrainians bombing their own people and here's how you can prove it because these rockets uh, that Russia uses don't have fins on them that, that go this direction and the pictures of the fragments of the rocket on the ground in Kramatorsk had fins going the other direction and so they're obviously the Ukraine, which is complete lie. It's a complete lie. And uh, this guy, gentleman who was my host, you know, you don't want to get in a big argument with your host, but he said, he said, you know, all those stories coming out of Bucha and Irpin, those are just, those are, those are theater. That never happened. That was just lies and propaganda on the Ukrainian part. And I just looked at him and said, dude, I was there. I was in Bucha. I was in Irpin. I saw it with my own eyes. It's not fake. That really happened. And he just looked at me and he was sort of speechless. And he just kind of said, he thought about it for a minute. And then he said, well, you know, I guess the side that's going to win this war is the side that does the best job of lying to its people. And that ended the, the conversation right there. I thought that was pretty profound on his part. Pretty profound indeed. And, and a perfect Piotr Kersen. Well, I wanted to just build on the Armenian point uh, and the Caucasus a little bit because um, – it's an area that we're seeing continued rumblings. It's it's a very uh, forgotten about and misunderstood part of the world, I think. And um, uh, there's so much um, bitterness and frustration and resentment, I think, felt by both sides concerning um, not just uh, Russian relations or, or post-Soviet times, but with each other. And um, the Nagoda Karabakh skirmishes of 2020, I think, was the you know the most recent flare-up that we've seen since the 94-95 conflict. Um, but Chuck, you know, one of the things that I noticed uh, in the headlines uh, about a month ago, but wasn't really reported much or sort of expanded on, was this um, re-establishment of relations between Armenia and Turkey. Um, because Turkey's obviously uh, with, with this uh, with the Armenian genocide uh, of uh, the early 20th century and, and, uh, and the very difficult relations that those two countries have arguably none at all the re-establishment of sort of diplomatic engagement was quite interesting um and an and illustration potentially that the countries want to maybe not go back to full normalization but you know in light of what's happening as you said in ukraine uh turkey's beginning to get a little bit you know opportunistic with its regional ambitions in in in, in uh, the caucasus and uh push out maybe the Russian uh, dominance there uh, and i was just curious to hear your take about those that that development but also you know what potentially could we see in terms of turkey russian tensions regarding them and also ukraine i think the best place to see the tension between turkey and russia on display is in syria i was there for a month last november and uh, you know there are three basic teams fighting over the uh, control of the area uh, which the kurds call rojava in the eastern kind of half of Syria, or at least the eastern third, uh, you have the the Kurds, which are looking for their own state. Then they're sort of backed up by the Americans. 
That's one team. You have the the Turkish government, uh, which is supporting ISIS or Daesh, as they call it. Uh, and so that's another team. They also have the, uh, uh, I guess, what you'd call the United Nations of ISIS, uh, which is the Free Syrian Army. And that's all part of that same team. And then you have the Syrian government under Bashar al-Assad and the Russians supporting him. Uh, so if you go to a place called Ain Issa uh, in Syria, all three of those groups are trying to occupy the same little, it's a little tiny village. There's a Russian base there. There's a uh, Turkish, it's right on the, up near the Turkish border near, near Kobani. And um, there uh, is an American kind of bastion there at the hospital. Uh, so the main street of that town is kind of known by everyone as an unspoken rule that it's neutral territory because everybody's got to, that's the only place to buy food. Everybody's got to go there. So it's pretty fascinating to walk down the street in Ainisa and pass Russian troops in their armored vehicles and pass uh, some free Syrian army guys and people from the Syrian government and all that. Um, suffice it to say that Turkey has big ambitions in becoming more than just a regional power player. And they're trying to uh, sort of bamboozle the West into believing that there's still a, uh, a NATO ally that we can count on. Um, and I, I don't want to go too far into this because this is supposed to be about uh, Ukraine, but suffice it to say that uh, they are a, an adversary, if not an enemy, both of the United States and of Russia, and everything they do is aimed at long-term expanding Turkey's influence uh, across that region, including what they're doing with Armenia right now. Uh, and they see the weakness uh, on the part of Russia. They see how Russia is distracted and sort of falling apart in Ukraine. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that they are moving to sort of normalize relations and cozy up to Armenia to, in the hopes of perhaps prying Armenia out of the grasp of the new Soviet Union, or as I call it, the Soviet reunion. <laughs> um, if I may just follow up, Royfield, and then I'll uh, I'll be quiet. Um, yeah, you know that the the official term, or I think what some analysts use, is cooperatively competitive. So the two countries have so much over overlapping interests, specifically uh, Turkey and Russia, um, and it, it's it's just fascinating to hear your take on that because I, I think it's such a a unique example of how countries sort of try to work together but then also have so much like you know i don't know hatred is a strong word but sort of frustration with one another's uh interests in their respective regions um but just because you were in syria and i and i'm uh, keeping it in ukraine obviously but the general that's been appointed uh to to lead this uh re-offensive so to speak um did you did you cover much of his uh, work, shall we say, activities in Syria? And, and what do you think that that's going to mean for if the Russians undertake this offensive? Because we're still waiting for it. Uh, what do you think that that's going to mean for, for things like Mariupol, the potential areas that the Russians try and um, uh, conquer, so to speak? Uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on, on the, on the uh, forget his name, the general who's been appointed. Right. I believe that general, uh, his only strategy uh, in Syria was brutality. And it's obvious that he is pursuing that strategy with uh, 
full effect in Ukraine uh, as we watch them absolutely, you know, just grind Mariupol into dust. Uh, but uh, it, I, I don't think that it necessarily reflects or means that uh, Russia's going to do any better at uh, this war than they did before they appointed him. Um, brutality uh, is pro- has proven so far in 50 days of this war to do nothing but galvanize the resolve of the Ukrainian people. And so additional brutality is only going to uh, lead to more resolve and fewer uh, surrenders. And so, as I said, I think that Russia has missed its window of opportunity to win this campaign uh, completely. They've already lost in the uh, media battle space, and that being the most important battle space, I really believe that um, changing your uh, the, the guy riding the horse is not really going to help a whole lot when the horse is uh, old and broken down and uh, a relic of World War II. Thank you for those questions, Piotr, and thank you for some uh, for those uh, succinct answers. So, Leanne, why don't you go next? Yeah, thank you so much. This is such an interesting room. I've just learned so much. And uh, yeah, on behalf of the, the the Ukrainians and all of those who have um, family and ancestry in Ukraine, um, it's just such a great job that you're doing. I was really fascinated by the story about... Uh, about the people answering the hotline about uh, soldiers who have not called back, called home since they came to Ukraine. And uh, I was just wondering, is that a well-known tactic that's been used in other places in the past? Or is that something that the Ukrainians just dreamed up right now for this, for, um, for this war? I have never heard of that happening in any other conflict. And I don't know that it could have happened in any other conflict simply because we now, you know, we never had this kind of social media kind of integration that we have uh, today. You know, it's, you know, I I could go on and on about that, but I, I really believe that this is a new kind of war and that the country who best leverages the opportunities that are provided by uh, social media engagement uh, in war and and aggregation of open source intel are bound to win. Chuck, how exactly does tenure work um, if you are a war correspondent? Um, is it a case of you, you're told uh, to be there until the end of the conflict? Um, you know, how exactly does that work? How, well, I, you know, go on. I, I'm not a, an employee of anyone and I wouldn't do this job as an employee because uh, I need to con- to maintain the ability to say no and to say I'm going home now. Um, n- not only because uh, I value my independence, but because very often, you know, you being the guy on the ground, you're the, the people you're working for are, you know, have different ideas about where they want you to go and what they want you to cover. And uh, I, I don't want to get killed doing this job. So I need the uh, ability to say no and uh, go home when it's time to go home. Well, we, we talked about how this conflict is very is very different in terms of the um, the reporting that anyone is able to do, let alone somebody who's on, on the ground. Uh, like yourself. Um, one of the things which re- really uh, surprised me uh, just before we actually started recording, you said that you are completely a one-man band. You don't have a cameraman with you. 
and I've been looking at your work and 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 I was you know somebody who is cut together uh, pop promos and short films I was kind of blown away by actually just the production values of your Armenia piece um what kit do you use and uh give us give us a sense of all the things that you carry around with you and then exactly well, how you then cut all this all this stuff together i'm an ultralight aficionado the older i get the older my knees get specifically the less weight i want to carry and so uh I'm always trying to downsize my kit, and at this point, I'm pretty much making the majority of my television with an iPhone 13 Pro Max. Uh, this is an absolutely amazing piece of equipment that will do things that a quarter-million-dollar camera wouldn't do 10 years ago. Uh, the the quality of the footage it puts out is astounding, and so I use it a lot. I do have a, a, a Sony RX10 uh camera that I carry because it has a 600 millimeter lens that I can use if I need to really zoom in on something. I carry a DJI Mavic Pro, uh, or I'm sorry, DJI Mini 2 uh, drone, and I carry uh, various GoPros and very small cameras for stuff like when I need to wear a hidden camera or something like that. But that's about it anymore. I used to carry you know, a lot more kit than I do, but uh, uh, times are changing and you've got to change with the times. This has been um, a really fascinating insight. Um, and this is, goes out to the room, a fascinating insight with somebody who's on the ground in Ukraine and has been able to travel, uh, whether it's the North, East, South and West. He's seen the whole country at war. He's seen its preparations for war. It's seen um, its citizens uh, become displaced. It's seen some of its citizens uh, become soldiers. So this is really an, an ideal opportunity uh, to fire a question uh, to um, th this to a war correspondent, somebody who can give us a real insight into the battle space, into the battlefield uh, that that is Ukraine. How does it work, Chuck, in terms of um, accreditation? Can I, Royfield Brown, rack up to Ukraine and say that I am? A journalist, and um, you know, I've got, I've done, I've done a few podcasts. I've been on TV. I've been on the radio a little bit. Um, how, how, how does that work? Um, are you vetted? Um, tell us about just the whole accreditation of being uh, on the front line. Sure. So uh, there's just a, a form you fill out online, and uh, there are journalists that I wouldn't even you know, don't have anywhere near your credentials uh, that are out here doing this. So it's certainly doable. Uh, you fill out the form and you, they, they do their best to kind of vet you a little bit and they give you some credentials, not credentials. I detained today for a half an hour at a checkpoint because they didn't like my national nationally recognized uh, credentials issued by the ministry of defense uh, and said that I had to have some local credentials uh, in order to do any work down here, which uh, would, you know, it's like, give me a break. You know, I can't get local credentials everywhere I go. But, you know, uh, it, it's kind of chalk it up to the fog of war. So it's doable. It's not that difficult. I don't really agree with the whole idea of credentials. I think if you're going to, you know, press is press. Uh, there was a time when uh, press was accredited. Nowadays, anybody with an iPhone can be press. And so 
I just think they ought to let people report uh, on what they're doing. Now, that said, I have seen people uh, doing things really bad uh, journalism from here. Uh, today, I saw some people running out uh, with press vests on and reporting from the scene of a, where a bomb had landed. And you don't want to do that within about 24 hours of when a bomb lands because then you're telling the enemy where his bombs landed and he can adjust and fire again. Uh, to hit his target. So you never want to tell bad people things they don't need to know. And that could well be an opportune time for us to draw a, a bail. Oh, oh, we do have Dr. Dr. Keisha, uh, who's a somewhat of a stalwart of, of, of the app. And um, Dr. Keisha, uh, welcome. Um, you're going to be, uh, you're going to have the honor of bringing up the rear, so to speak. You're going to have the honor of asking the last question. Perfect. Well, hello, everyone. Hello, Chuck. Thank you for being here. I've been doing a lot. First of all, I, I do a lot with frontline workers. And I think that first responders to me are just amazing or some of the true heroes. And I know you're part of the Free Burma Rangers. So I just want to know, especially now, WHO has reported that frontline workers, healthcare attacks on that have been more in Ukraine, literally two thirds more of the attacks, two thirds of the attacks on healthcare have been in Ukraine. And just what are you seeing to me? It's just, you know, unfathomable that frontline workers, paramedics, you guys that are out here trying to drive and save people are under attack, um, just trying to save lives on both sides, actually. Um, so how do you feel about this? And, and what are you saying, Chuck? Thank you. The Russians will shoot at anything that moves. Uh, they're very undisciplined, very poorly trained, very poorly led, but unfortunately far too well equipped. And so uh, when they see something moving, they're just as likely to shoot it as anything. That's one of the reasons why we've had 19 journalists already uh, killed and injured in Ukraine during the conflict. And uh, that goes the same for, um, you know, frontline workers, uh, healthcare workers and that sort of thing. Uh, we've seen similar uh, attacks on, on workers like that in Syria. As a matter of fact, one of our team, our Freedom Rangers team was killed uh, in Syria by a Turkish drone strike uh, in a marked ambulance that was out in the desert all by itself, far away from everything else. And uh, Turkey decided to drop a bomb on the ambulance anyway. Uh, we weren't the only ones, but uh, it happens. It happens. Uh, it's, you know, warfare is, is warfare as much as we try to put rules on it uh, when it comes down to it. The people pulling the triggers very often are they're just happy to uh, pull the trigger and uh, let loose no matter what. Thank you. And thank you, Dr. Keisha, uh, for reminding us of uh, first responders and people um, who are doing humanitarian things on the line. Um, this has been a, a tremendous episode of Mid-Atlantic. Chuck Holton, I'd like to thank you for, for coming on to the show and coming on with, with such late notice. We were speaking in a room just some um, two hours before uh, you, we actually did this. You do great work, sir. Again, I'd like to say to you, keep doing what you're doing, but also, sir, please stay safe <laughs> this is a recording of the podcast mid-atlantic if you're if you're in the audience um give chuck a follow um it's the least uh, i think anyone or any of us can actually do to show us uh, appreciation of his work uh bringing the proud uh defense of the the people of ukraine um to the world's attention he's part of a coterie of people who are actually doing that and he does sterling work um you can actually send me an email um, uh, at royfield at gmail.com if you'd like to uh, comment on 
on the show. Um, and, uh, and also, uh, why don't you subscribe to the podcast? The podcast is Mid-Atlantic, which uh, has been running for some eight years now. We have hundreds of shows uh, dealing with US, UK uh, politics and geopolitics as well. And of course, for the last six weeks, we've focused on uh, the proud uh, and defense of Ukraine by its people against its unwarranted Russian invasion. We always say uh, we are avowedly a left of center political show, but we don't demonize our right leaning brothers and sisters because we believe in civil discourse and any society. Uh, we, we need to be able to meet people who disagree with us politically in the commons, in the common space, and to be able to argue about our differences, but in a civil way, but also agree to disagree. Chuck, um, where can people catch your work, sir? Uh, probably the best place is to go to the Hot Zone podcast on YouTube. I try to update that at least three times a week, sometimes more when I'm traveling. I go to about 25 countries a year and uh, report on wars, disasters, and crisis. And so uh, you get a good broad uh, spectrum look at those kinds of uh, hot zones around the world through the podcast. Uh, you can also follow me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the normal channels. I don't do TikTok and all those kind of weird ones. So uh, so um, happy to, to have you there. You can also find me at chuckholton.locals.com. Please follow his work and as I say for in the audience, give everybody on stage a follow. We've had great questions from Leanne, uh, Gabora, Do- and Dr. Keisha Piotr Curzon. Uh, so there you go. This has been an episode of the recording of uh, Mid Atlantic. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.